The purpose of this activity is to expand the reach of chest content through awareness, critique, and discussion. All articles have undergone peer review for methodological rigor and audience relevance. Any views asserted are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by chest. Listeners should be aware that speakers' opinions may vary and are advised to read the full corresponding journal articles for complete context. This content should not be used as a basis for medical advice or treatment, nor should it substitute the judgment used by clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine. Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHESS, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHESS podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHESS podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really interesting conversation on diagnostic and therapeutic considerations for critical COVID disease. Today, we're very fortunate to have Drs. Maslow and Roshberg as our guests, and we'll be asking them to introduce themselves. Uh, David? Hi, my name is David Maslov. I'm an Associate Professor of Medicine at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and an intensivist at Kingston Health Sciences Centre. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. And then Bram? Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Bram Roshberg. I'm an Associate Professor at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Stuck with a couple of Canadians uh, today, and I work as an intensivist at Hamilton Health Sciences. And it's a pleasure to have both of you on the podcast. Today we'll be discussing the article published in CHEST entitled Complications of Critical COVID-19, Diagnostic and Therapeutic Considerations for the Mechanically Ventilated Patient. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, David, why did you write this uh, review article? Well, we essentially uh, approached it out of necessity, basically, um, when we had quite an interesting uh, third wave of COVID back in the spring of, of last year. Um, especially in the province of Ontario, where Bram and I both work um, in my region in Kingston, um, which is sort of midway between Toronto and Montreal, we had very little COVID in our community and essentially no COVID at all in our in our ICU. Uh, meanwhile, in Toronto, in the greater Toronto area, closer to, to where Bram is, there was quite a, a large surge and the ICUs there quickly became overwhelmed. Uh, so because our healthcare system is, is provincially um, organized, we were able to move patients and, um, and coordinate between ICUs across the province to create capacity. Uh, and as a result, our unit in Kingston ended up taking um, quite a large, large number of patients uh, from the Toronto area um, transported um, to us with, with uh, critical illness from COVID. So at the, uh, at the peak, our 33-bed ICU surged up to about 64 beds, uh, and we, um, we cared for uh, a great number of patients, um, most of whom or almost all of whom were not from our region. Um, so we, you know, we, we the, these patients arrived to our ICU, and we at that point had very little firsthand experience with COVID, um, and so out of necessity had to uh, familiarize ourselves with, um, with with the management of, of these patients um, and, and do so quickly. Um, and so, in doing that, I sort of called <laughs> called in favors from uh, people like Bram and uh, some of the other co-authors on the paper who have um, you know uh, expertise in mechanical ventilation, infectious disease, and critical care management, um, and we developed um, this kind of uh, review or overview of, of the current uh, literature um, and, and state of the art in, in caring for COVID patients in the ICU. 
Yeah, it's definitely been a learning experience for all of us over the last uh, couple of years. And then, Bram, what was uh, your motivation? I mean, I think similar is that, um, uh, one, it was a kind invitation. This was truly uh, David's uh, brainchild and, and an opportunity to contribute with such a, a great group of collaborators. But I think, you know, we were all faced with not just COVID critical illness, but recognizing that these patients have long durations of stay and truly beyond the lungs end up with uh, complications affecting all organ systems. And I think the, the, when he proposed the idea of looking at these complications, a one single place review where uh, clinicians, bedside practitioners could go to understand uh, the phases of illness and then the complications that COVID patients entail at these different phases uh, based on organ systems. It seemed like a, an incredibly useful endeavor and something that would be uh, well-read and, and used by, appreciated by practitioners. I definitely agree. It was a really great article. So I'm going to let David kick us off. Um, in, in the article, you describe uh, different illness phases of critical COVID-19 disease. Uh, for the benefit of our audience, maybe you could just uh, overview that for us and then uh, get the discussion going. David? Sure. We sort of uh, conceptualized the way um, patients kind of arrive to our ICU uh, through the course of their, um, their COVID illness by uh, thinking of an early uh, phase soon after um, infection with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, where we see um, a, a, a period of viral replication, um, which is met by the body with a, a, an interferon-mediated um, response. Um, and in cases where that response may be altered in some way or, or um, viral clearance is, is impaired, um, we see um, inflammation um, of, of varying degrees related to the infection um, causing um, organ system dysfunction, and in particularly in the lungs. Um, and so um, patients uh, arrive to the ICU often with, um, with uh, in lung inflammation that may or may not have been treated at that stage with various anti-inflammatory therapies. Um, and then over the course of an ICU stay, which can, as Bram was mentioning, be quite a, a prolonged ICU stay, we see um, waning of, of inflammation um, and then new um, sequelae of the uh, physiologic perturbations of COVID arising and then sequelae of the treatments that they've received in the hospital arising as well. Bram, uh, what do you want to add to that? I think it's a it's a nice summary Dave's uh, given, and I think that there are important implications, you know, to this disease course as we've come to understand it. When we start thinking about therapeutics, you know, we've seen I think a lot of the pretty unbelievable research that we've done into decreasing uh, COVID critical illness or improving outcomes has focused on this inflammatory process, which tends to peak at the one week or. 10-day, two-week mark uh, into disease, um, and you get alveolitis, progression to ARDS, and listen, we've seen benefits with things like corticosteroids and IL-6 receptor blockers and JAK2 inhibitors, which are specifically aimed at uh, modulating this uh, host immune response. Now, more recently, we've seen benefit of some of these antiviral agents if given early on during the, the viral replication phase, and this is you know much more downstream when symptoms onset uh, and soon after uh, diagnosis, which, you know, is hampered today given the access to, to testing that's available. And then the focus of this article certainly is, you know, once that inflammation has settled down, uh, especially for critically ill patients, now is the time when you're running into a lot of these complications um, that, 
you know, not necessarily driven by viral replication, not necessarily driven by inflammation, but a reflection of the fact that these patients have prolonged critical illness and, and a lot of um, the conditions that any patient that has prolonged critical illness might entertain, but then some that are specific to COVID as well. And in your article, um, you describe inflammation, secondary infection, thrombosis, neurologic sequelae, and then ventilator-induced injury to the lungs and diaphragm. So maybe, David, you can go ahead and just give us um, your overview of, you know, what, uh, how do you test for these uh, illnesses or conditions, and then what is the recommended treatment at this time? Sure. Well, one of the main um, uh, concerns and, and areas of inquiry for us when we saw these patients coming through was, um, in addition to their SARS-CoV-2 infection, are there any other types of infection um, that might be might be playing a role, um, especially when, when patients are um, in the ICU for quite a long period of time um, and, and um, entering into different phases of illness. And we essentially, um, you know, looking through the literature, sort of um, were able to break this down into three different categories. We see Patients who have uh, nosocomial infections uh, from their ICU stay much in the same way that other patients with severe respiratory failure or shock may have in, in our ICU, but also infections arising um, uh, probably as a consequence of some of the therapies that uh, patients may have received for their uh, severe or critical COVID. And those would be um, opportunistic infections that arise because of uh, the anti-inflammatory treatments given or the reactivation of latent infections um, as well. So in terms of the, the nosocomial infections, um, really ventilator-associated pneumonia is um, uh, far and away the, the uh, most prevalent and most sort of concerning of these, and maybe an explanation for why patients in the ICU um, who seem to be um, out of the um, initial phase of the, of the viral illness uh, may not be getting better or may have recurrence of fevers or uh, worsening of respiratory failure. And the rates of ventilator-associated pneumonia um, tend to be um, quite high in, in COVID-19, according to observational studies that have been done, and maybe higher than in other uh, ICU conditions. Um, it's the usual um, culprits in terms of um, organisms. We see um, staphylococcal infections and gram-negative infections, and generally um, recapitulating the flora of, of an ICU, um, and so treatment um, ought to be directed towards those um, initial empiric therapy, and then uh, hopefully targeted therapy directed um, uh, by, by cultures that may have been drawn. Things get a little more interesting in the uh, area of um, these sorts of opportunistic infection, infections that may arise, um, just because we have um, a lot of inflammatory um, um, anti-inflammatory med medications that have been given that, that are suppressing people's immune systems. So these are the doses of uh, dexamethasone that have been given, uh, IL-6 receptor antagonists that have been given, um, combined with uh, prolonged periods of mechanical ventilation that can lead to lung injury, um, really sets up a, an, an environment where infections like uh, pneumocystis and even uh, pulmonary aspergillosis can, um, can arise. So in the later phases of a patient in the ICU, um, those, those are definite considerations for, for a patient who may have persistent fevers or persistent uh, respiratory failure and not, not getting better. And diagnosing those is best done through, uh, through bronchoscopy and sampling of uh, airway specimens. And then lastly... Yeah, so, you, um, so you'd oh, recommend bronchoscopy over um, uh, sputum samples or uh, low respiratory cultures taken by the uh, respiratory therapist? I, I, our practice has been to, um, to do that whenever possible uh, at this stage of patients' illnesses. Uh, they're usually beyond the earlier phases of COVID and the uh, considerations around infection um, uh, control are, are less, um, and, and so uh, better specimens might be obtained um, 
that way, especially for some of these um, more unusual specimens that might require special stains or um, um, galactomannan assays and these sorts of things um, that may come better from a, uh, a lavage specimen. Along those lines, maybe if I can just I, I just add, I mean, I work at a um, uh, uh, oncology center, and we know that you know when it comes to specimens, the the patients that may benefit from BAL more than than ET aspirates or sputums are those that are immune compromised, especially looking for opportunistic infections like Dave mentions. And I think you know because of perhaps. Um, the COVID, uh, but also the immune modulating agents we give them. I think these patients are can be considered in some contexts immune compromised, and and I agree with with Dave is we've had a much lower threshold, especially when we start thinking a week, two, three weeks out in some of these COVID patients for undergoing BAL um, for ruling out opportunistic infections, whereas in other immunocompetent patients we might have a higher threshold. So our practice has been similar. Yeah, go ahead, David. I was just going to also uh, lastly mention the, um, the potential of reactivating latent infections, which um, remains perhaps more of a theoretical concern. There's still not a great deal of um, observational data on, on this issue um, specifically, but um, theoretically there's at least a risk of uh, reactivating infections like strongyloides or tuberculosis, given that these patients are receiving um, high doses of uh, corticosteroids. And so the clinician should be um, alert to that possibility. And, and some, in some cases, uh, empiric treatment uh, for things like strongyloides, uh, hyperinfection have been, have been given. I think that's a good overview of the infectious uh, issues. Uh, I want to go back to the inflammation issue because you mentioned that in your review article. Um, we often, patients receive a 10-day course of uh, decadron or dexamethasone, um, and there have been varying doses given either 6 milligrams or 12 milligrams daily. What would you recommend in terms of the initial dose? And then what happens if your patient uh, worsens after you stop uh, the steroids? So what would you recommend uh, patients receive at that time? Maybe I'll uh, I'll jump in on this one if it's okay. It's an area of interest of mine for sure, and I think you're absolutely right. Is that I think you know in the post recovery era, folks seem to ubiquitously prescribe dexamethasone at six milligrams for the ten day course, consistent with what was done in recovery. Um, however, there is a relative arbitrariness both in the duration and the dose that was chosen. And certainly, you know, if we look at the non-COVID ARDS literature, uh, lots of different doses, uh, DEXA ARDS published uh, a couple of years ago now, used a larger dose, 20 milligrams. Um, and then some of the other uh, COVID trials that were included in the prospective meta-analysis in JAMA actually even used other agents, including methylprednisone and hydrocortisone, uh, which was used in REMAP. So I think there's still a lot of residual uncertainty uh, and, cer- and definitely room for further research in this area. And uh, in fact, we're looking at organizing uh, a trial uh, here in Canada, looking at optimal duration, and especially in those patients that at 10 days are still requiring non-invasive or invasive mechanical ventilation or even uh, ECLS is their benefit to then uh, prolonging the course of therapy. I'll tell you my personal practice, which maybe is not a reflection of everyone's, is that um, when it comes to duration, if at 10 days patients are still requiring high levels of ventilatory support, I certainly have been extending the duration of, of corticosteroids. Now, to what endpoint? Uh, I, I think it's unclear. I think, uh, you know, there, there is a window for inflammation. I think once you start getting much uh, out, you know, three, four, five weeks following the initial 
um, trigger for lung inflammation in ARDS. Now you're probably into more of a fibroproliferative phase and scarring of the lung and perhaps at this point any benefit of immune suppression or modulation is no longer there. But I think uh, at 10 days, uh, especially in patients that have ongoing respiratory failure, I think there is still opportunity for anti-inflammatory agents like dexamethasone. So I have been extending for sure. I think the dose is another interesting discussion and you may have seen publications from the Danish group recently in JAMA that compared 12 milligrams versus 6 milligrams. Now, they did not demonstrate a statistically significant reduction in their composite primary endpoint, but there were certainly trends across the board of improvements in patient outcomes with the higher 12 milligram dose, more similar to what was used in DEXA ARDS in the non-COVID population. And you know, we all worry about the harms of higher dose, but they didn't demonstrate increasing risks of metabolic derangements or GI bleed or neuromuscular weakness, understanding that those outcomes are difficult to capture. So I, I've personally changed my practice and started using uh, 12 milligrams in, in my COVID patients. And um, like I say, extending the duration in those that aren't getting better. But this is an area rife for further research. And then, you know, there's the whole questions about how does this interact or change in patients that are receiving IL-6 receptor blockers or those that are getting JAK2 and, and how does benefit and further immune suppression weigh against complications What about newer variants like Omicron that might be slightly less inflammatory in the lungs? Is the same benefit there? Again, so many questions without great answers, unfortunately. There's definitely a lot of work that needs to be done in that regard. Uh, Bram, in terms of, uh, we've seen a number of younger patients over the last year, and some of them have asthma. Um, What's intrigued me is that some of them actually go into a bronchospastic episode um, and they seem to respond to so-called higher doses of steroids, you know, solimedrol 60, q What is your practice being in these patients who either have COPD or asthma that become bronchospastic? Yeah, it's a, I, I can't say I've, I've treated more than a handful of, of folks with, you know, true reactive airway disease and then triggered COVID pneumonia. But, but I, I certainly agree. I think this might be a population where you might be inclined to use uh, larger doses, recognizing the relatively arbitrariness of what was chosen uh, in recovery and, and some of the data. So I, I, I'd, I'd be, I think we all get scared about the long-term implications of high-dose steroids, but a, a short course, you know, we prescribe steroids for COPD exacerbations without thinking twice about it. And um, definitely if somebody has uh, wheeze and signs um, of dynamic uh, airway obstruction, I'm more inclined to use higher doses. I think the other thing we've even seen as outpatients, even pre-critical illness, is potentially the benefits of inhaled corticosteroids and, you know, a local effect in terms of immunomodulation. And I also have been aggressive with prescribing this uh, in my ICU patients, but I know that there's some data to suggest that there could be benefit even uh, pre-critical illness of inhaled corticosteroids. Gotcha. And then, David, any comments that you have on um, steroids or IL-6 uh, receptor antagonists uh, before we move on to thrombosis? I would uh, just uh, echo everything Bram has said there and um, uh, wading into the what is becoming a, a very complex issue of uh, how to um, optimize the, that dosing. Um, the only other consideration that, that some areas may have from time to time is um, um, availability of other uh, anti-inflammatory agents like IL-6 receptor antagonists and, and baricitinib, uh, and in cases where uh, those are on in short supply or may not be available um, at a particular time, then uh, that might be further rationale to uh, pursue the, the higher dose um, uh, versus the lower dose uh, steroid regimen. Um, and then at that period when um, 
you know, when, when a 10-day course has been completed and a patient is still not getting better, uh, certainly um, our, our, our practice mirrors what, what Bram describes to um, consider uh, prolonging that course uh, while also undertaking investigations for these other um, potential complications that, that we discuss here, including um, that that may be a good time for um, sampling uh, airway specimens um, and for, for looking for thrombosis. Before we get to thrombosis, I do want to ask you um, what role CRP and procalcitonin play in your evaluation of these patients. It's, it's, as you've already alluded to, it's very tricky to figure out, you know, are they having this fever because of persistent inflammation? Is it because of a bacterial infection? Is it a fungal infection? Um, is it a parasitic infection? How are you using CRPs, procalcitonins, uh, other tests, Bram? I'll be honest, we are not routinely using either. Um, uh, you know, some, the trials that have demonstrated benefit uh, to immunomodulatory agents, some have uh, guided to elevated CRPs, uh, for example, um, and others have not. I participate in the uh, WHO guidelines. I'm one of the methods chair for the WHO guidelines, and we've carefully evaluated this when it came to uh, both IL-6 receptor blockers and steroids, looking for sub subgroup effects based on whether they were titrated to inflammatory markers or not. And there was no substantial effect modification based on if they were. And obviously, there's implications to, you know, resources and costs with following biomarkers. So my sense is the benefit persists whether, whether you test and see elevation in, in these inflammatory biomarkers or not. Now, maybe there is heterogeneity in the population of patients with COVID respiratory failure. In fact, I'm sure there is, and uh, perhaps a subset of patients that might benefit and a subset of patients that might not. I don't think we yet have the capabilities of identifying that, that subset that is more likely to benefit from these immunomodulatory agents as opposed to those that are less likely to. So, um, and I don't think that CRP is that marker. So I, I, our traditional, uh, yeah, the traditional biomarkers available, I personally do not titrate uh, in the setting of COVID illness. Interested if gotcha. Dave or you do otherwise? No, with same same experience here. Um, we, we may measure them from from time to time, uh, just uh, more more for prognostic interest uh, rather than anything else, but uh, but less so for titrating medications. And I think, as Bram mentioned, there's um, there's probably a very uh, useful role for using um, biomarkers um, to to guide selection and dose and duration of some of these treatments. Um, but CRP is. Uh, it's probably not not that one, just because it's a, a very broad broad marker. Um, so it, future trials would be very interesting to to look at uh, more directed and um, specific uh, markers of inflammation that may come from um, genomic studies, for instance, that uh, that could pinpoint specific pathways. Um, but um, uh, more more sort of holistic markers um, uh, not currently using to. to Gotcha. And then in terms of um, remdesivir, um, I found it very intriguing that um, uh, the NIH group recommends the use of remdesivir um, in early COVID within the first five days. Um, however, the WHO guidelines uh, uh, recommends not using it. Uh, what would your take on that be, Bram? Yeah, I mean, the, so uh, full disclosure, the WHO recommendation is a high priority for updating, given the publications of both the, the pine tree data in New England Journal and then the, you may have seen uh, CATCO, the recent Canadian publication uh, that just came out in the Canadian Medical Journal just in the last couple of weeks. So um, it does require updating, given I don't think the answer is clear cut. You know, there's been some 
uh, positive trials and some negative trials, and I still think that there's a high degree of uh, uncertainty, and I have not seen the updated evidence. Uh, we do a network meta-analysis that informs the clinical practice guidelines, and I haven't seen the updated effect estimates. I think earlier on in the pandemic, based on ACT and a couple of the other early trials that evaluated remdesivir, a lot of the hinging and the difference between the NIH recommendation and the WHO recommendation came down to the evaluation of subgroup effect based on those with non-severe severe disease versus those with critical disease. The um, WHO group, after very, we use quite a comprehensive methodologic evaluation, and after a very carefully um, evaluating the subgroup effect, did not believe that this was of sufficient credibility to make different recommendations for those that were had critical illness as opposed to those on the ward given a uh, high degree of imprecision and low numbers. So we decided that, you know, looking at the totality of the data, that there was not enough to recommend for uh, remdesivir. I think the NIH uh, more focused on the subgroup analysis showing potential benefit in those earlier less sick patients and, and made a recommendation in that group. And I think that explained the differences. Both were sort of conditional recommendations, recognizing that they could go uh, either way. And it, it was nothing was strong or, or definitive. But, but again, I think in the context of some of the new data that we have evaluating remdesivir, I think this is rife for reevaluation by both groups, probably. Yeah, we're going to need to see what the final recommendations are. So we've discussed um, uh, remdesivir treatment for the viral in uh, infection. We've discussed inflammation, and then we've discussed a secondary infection. So let's uh, go into thrombosis. Um, what workup should we do um, to diagnose venous thromboembolic disease, and what treatment is recommended? Sure. Well, we, we know from um, early studies that uh, thrombosis is perhaps more common in COVID-related critical illness than in other forms of critical illness rates of um, venous thromboembolic disease of probably 30% in, in some, um, which is definitely high enough to, um, you know, be, uh, be attuned to the possibility that this might be um, uh, playing a role in someone's um, failure to progress or, or a secondary worsening um, after a period of improvement uh, in the ICU. Um, thrombosis can occur um, in, the, in the deep veins of the legs, in the lungs, uh, both. Um, and, and so uh, it, uh, it, it's sensible uh, when someone is in the ICU to, to at least um, uh, for those when, when clinical parameters indicate that that might be at play. And because of the, the high prevalence of that, we've sort of liberalized a little bit when we um, would, would normally do that and uh, not, not wait for the full house necessarily. Um, most patients um, will get a scan at some point um, just to see if there is uh, a lungs uh, or scans of the legs, legs to see if there are clots there. The timing of doing that is uh, an interesting question for further research and, um, and whether um, doing it uh, early versus doing it later versus doing it only when triggered by certain clinical changes. Uh, I think that's a, a, a for further discussion. Um, there is, of course, some evidence on just prophylactically treating everyone with, um, with treatment dose uh, full anticoagulation. And um, the, the recent uh, evidence published in the summer um, from the ATT&CK and ACTIVE4 combined uh, clinical trials suggests that that strategy is probably not helpful in critical COVID uh, for patients who are in the ICU. The other consideration um, I think that's important to, to look at is, is in treating venous thrombosis when it does occur. It may be the case that um, patients with COVID um, have, uh, you know, because of a thrombotic mechanism related to the virus itself have um, 
changes in levels of um, factor eight and fibrinogen and, and other um, uh, regulation cascade that may make it more difficult to follow um, anticoagulation with um, with intravenous heparin. The um, times may not be um, as reliable markers of uh, of effect um, as in patients without COVID. Uh, and so in some centers, and in, in ours in particular, we've begun to follow anti-10A levels um, just to improve the, um, the of heparin dosing of uh, thrombosis. And then, Bram, uh, what has your experience been? Uh, uh, in your review article, you mentioned that the DDIM is not reliable. Um, uh, so should we be routinely uh, uh, um, ordering um, ultrasounds and CT scans, or uh, what marker are you using? Um, sometimes if you wait for the leg to swell, um, you kind of miss the boat. No doubt, no doubt. And I think the prevalence of uh, PE once we do look certainly seems like it's been high in this group. Um, perhaps, you know, in keeping with the previous discussion of inflammation and knowing that tissue factor release is such a crucial aspect of uh, the clotting cascade. So I think the way I've operationalized this, at least myself, is just being extremely um, suspicious for pulmonary embolism in this population. And I think my, my threshold for uh, undergoing um, CAT scan is, is certainly lower. I, I sort of perhaps guide my decisions a little bit based on uh, imaging uh, to explain hypoxia. And for patients that are worsening or not getting better in the time frame that I would expect, um, I, I am fairly routinely, especially if we're hitting the three, four, five-day mark and they're not improving, sending these patients for CAT scan. Um, one of the issues often is, is that they're not stable even for to go to radiology, given the degree of hypoxia, paralyzed proning, et cetera. And in these patients, you know, have to more carefully consider either uh, starting with ultrasounds of the legs uh, or uh, even empiric treatment while uh, we await an opportunity to uh, do the definitive test. But I, I personally, again, have not been using biomarkers in this, in this population, but just entailing a very high degree of suspicion. And then when the patient is started on anticoagulation, how long are you recommending um, they receive it, assuming that this is the first uh, episode occurring with COVID? Is it the usual three months or six months? Yeah, it, we, we would uh, typically undertake uh, full-dose anticoagulation for a period of, of three months, provided that there are no other, um, you know. Gotcha. And then so let's turn our attention Gotcha. And then so let's turn our attention to the neurologic sequelae. Um, in the review article, you discuss uh, delirium, stroke, and neuromuscular weakness. Um, what tools should we be using to uh, diagnose these, and uh, what treatment should we offer? Yeah, the question of uh, tools for diagnosing these is um, is really a, a great one because um, part of the challenge here is that uh, often these patients um, have such severe um, respiratory disease uh, that they're intubated for prolonged periods of time, uh, which requires deep sedation and often um, uh, paralysis, which um, all of which can confound our neurologic exam. Uh, and so, again, a, a high degree of suspicion um, is uh, is kind of needed to, to uh, ascertain whether or not uh, f- further further testing is needed with uh, with imaging to see if someone has had um, a stroke or a bleed or something like that. We do see um, possibly as a consequence of some of these uh, thrombotic derangements that we've discussed that um, there is potentially a slightly higher risk of stroke uh, in patients with COVID than compared to similar patients in the ICU who, who don't have COVID. Um, not rates as, as high as with um, DVT and PE, but um, high enough nonetheless that in a patient who is 
not waking up or um, not not progressing as as expected, um, uh, a CT scan or some um, cross-sectional imaging of the brain um, may be helpful in, in identifying some pathology. Certainly patients um, with COVID are at very high risk of developing delirium in the ICU, again, probably as a function of um, all of these um, treatments that they're receiving, the sedation, the analgesia uh, for prolonged periods of time, um, and that can complicate uh, weaning in a number of cases. Um, and again, all of those, for those same reasons, and in, in conjunction with the steroids that patients receive as well, uh, ICU-acquired weakness, um, a major concern, especially as patients' ICU stays stretch into um, days and weeks and, and I think we've lost David. David, are you still there? Yep. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, this is, I think it's cutting out a little bit. Um, uh, Bram, uh, I want to ask you on um, uh, the issue of, you know, making sure that we obviously want to minimize the amount of benzodiazepines and paralytics that we're giving these patients. But as has already been alluded to, these patients have marked uh, uh, inflammation in their lungs, ARDS. Um, what are you recommending in terms of uh, uh, they're getting steroids, they're getting uh, paralytics, they're getting uh, benzos, sometimes because they can't tolerate the uh, propofol? Um, how are you managing them to ensure that they minimize lung damage, but at the same time also minimize um, delirium and neuromuscular complications? Certainly a difficult balance, isn't it? And I mean, we know that uh, neuromuscular agent exposure and corticosteroid exposure are independent risk factors for uh, ICU-acquired weakness. So I, I, I don't think there's an easy answer. I, I think back to our third wave, which for us in Ontario, what uh, Dave already described was the springtime of 2021. And uh, the number of patients with uh, ARDS and severe ARDS coming through our ICU and the, so many patients, I think we forgot all of our best practices in terms of um, minimizing sedation and minimizing paralytics, thinking of how many patients were on propofol, needing midazolam on top of that, needing rocuronium infusions on top of that, um, and for days and days on end. Now, again, they needed it from a, a lung perspective, but the impact on their brains and on their uh, neuromuscular junction, I'm sure, was substantial. And we saw that. You know, I think that's they talk about the pandemic after the pandemic the pandemic in the ICU is the the impact of survivors on requiring rehabilitation and uh, downstream impacts on uh, functional capacity. So I don't think that there's any easy answers. I think the same general sense of minimizing sedation as much as possible, uh, frequent spontaneous breathing trials coordinated with spontaneous awakening trials, uh, attempts at liberation from mechanical ventilation as soon as uh, is feasible, but easier said than done when you're dealing with such high degrees of uh, lung inflammation, ARDS. And then, so let's move on to the ventilator-induced lung injury because um, we actually have good uh, clinical practice even before COVID um, occurred. Um, and you mentioned the importance of lung protective ventilation, um, permissive hypercapnia, um, and then as well as ECMO. So, um, Brad, maybe you could take us uh, through uh, your approach to minimizing ventilator-induced lung injury and obviously the risks of uh, you know pneumomeniostinum and pneumothorax. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, uh, Dr. Pepper, I think it's the same uh, principles that you just mentioned that we all have come to know uh, through ARDS management, even in the pre-COVID era, um, you know, protective uh, lung or tidal volumes, limiting uh, uh, plateau pressures, recruitment maneuvers, um, 
optimizing PEEP. It's the same general principles uh, in COVID. And I know there's been lots of discussion around, you know, different phenotypes, those that are recruitable, those that are not. But but inevitably, like I say, the same uh, uh, practice persists. And I think about our trainees, you know, the experience and uh, exposure to ARDS that they've had in the last couple of years uh, is fairly unprecedented. I think about my own training and you see ARDS every once in a while, but, uh, but the high degree and the focus on achieving lung protective ventilation, I think um, we're all experts at this point. Uh, to some degree. But, you know, there's also through that opportunity for learning as well. And I think we have started to learn maybe different ways to optimize things, focusing perhaps less on volumes. I think volumes are still important, but maybe there is room to focus also on things like drive pressure with an understanding that higher drive pressures are associated with worse outcomes independent of volumes and uh, different measures of uh, being able to see uh, distending pressures, like using esophageal manometry or diaphragm ultrasound or monitoring of airway occlusion pressures. So I think we've there's been opportunities to learn more about how best to prevent ventilator-induced lung injury through this. And then I think the other big key has been the role and use of uh, ECLS for those uh, that have severe ARDS or those that have refractory hypoxia. Uh, at my own center, we, we pretty much established our ECLS program uh, through the second, third wave um, uh, of the pandemic and, and the, the volumes that we've been able to put through uh, of patients. It, it was a steep learning curve, I'd say. Um, but I think they're still learning about how best to apply it. We've done some systematic reviews looking at prognosis of COVID patients uh, with ECMO. It seemed like, you know, those benefits that we saw early on, mortality rates in the 35-40% range in the first couple of waves have gotten worse in the subsequent waves. And now mortality for patients that end up on ECMO in the range of 60%. And whether that's a patient selection issue, whether that's, you know, the fact that we've been able to optimize therapy better and now those that are, are failing and, and requiring, uh, there's perhaps less that's recoverable. I'm not sure. But I think that, you know, when best to use ECLS, how best to use ECLS, and whether it's better to use it early to optimize uh, lung mechanics or whether it's better to wait until refractory hypoxia, I think there's, there's still lots of residual questions uh, about uh, how best to accomplish this. But, but in general, I think it's the, the same bread and butter principles of ARDS management that, that we knew of even prior to COVID. And then in terms of um, critical COVID, where the patients clinically meet the definition of ARDS, they're just not intubated yet. They're on high flow, uh, more than 30 liters per minute, uh, FiO2 of 90%. Um, what practice are you employing? Are, are you going for high flow or are you going for CPAP? Uh, what is the role of BiPAP? Uh, there was a pretty interesting article that came out in the last week or so um, describing the, the, the benefits of probably CPAP over high flow. What's your practice been and uh, what would you recommend? I'm happy to this start and then really maybe... Good. Sorry, go oh, ahead, Dave. Sorry, go ahead, Brian. No, you please. Oh, I was just going to say that this uh, that you, you've asked the very question that we've been asking ourselves for uh, for quite some time and this is really another area where um, uh, some... Um, uh, Interventional research um, might might be very helpful given the equipoise that we have around some of these issues. Uh, we certainly provide high flow oxygen um, uh, to patients um, in various clinical settings um, and uh, look monitor them very closely for for changes in their work of breathing. Um, uh, but the, the questions of when to transition to 
uh, non-invasive ventilation and then invasive ventilation um, uh, remain somewhat open and, um, and practice patterns uh, may vary along those lines. A lot of considerations, you know, we, we encourage our patients to, um, uh, to be in a prone position as much as possible, but um, that's not always feasible. Um, and we, you know, worry about, um, you know, patients who, um, who appear to be breathing comfortable but comfortably but may be uh, experiencing very high swings in, in pleural pressure uh, and may be drawing in very large tidal volumes. And it uh, remains, I think, somewhat unclear as to whether um, that is um, logically advantageous to them or, or perhaps physiologically in, in some ways. Um, and so... Some of that decision-making around um, when to transition um, remains a bit of a challenge, um, monitoring being the, being the parameter to um, be able to catch um, people and, and, and rescue them from uh, um, a, a state of respiratory failure as early as possible. Bram, I'm interested to get your take on this because if there's one thing that we found in critical care practice is where there's a lack of evidence, that's when clinicians get most vehement about their uh, practice and defend it very strongly. Um, What's available in the literature and what would you recommend? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with Dave. I think this is one of the most vexing uh, issues through all of COVID is what to do with these patients on, you know, high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation where they are breathing extremely large tidal volumes, all bite with generating with negative pressure. And, you know, do you uh, intubate them and entail positive pressure and sedation versus uh, leaving them and trying to push the envelope as much as possible? And I think as the the pandemic has progressed, I I tend to be moving towards the idea of trying to hold off uh, intubating as as long as we can. Um, Now, I don't tolerate SATs in the 70s or 80s. I certainly want to ensure that they're not hypoxic, and if they become hypoxic, uh, move to intubate them. But these patients on non-invasive ventilation and high flow are extremely sick, and you may be aware I've heard discussions that they're updating the Berlin criteria to incorporate this idea that patients on high flow or NIV could still meet ARDS criteria uh, with this revision, which I think is appropriate. I think about how many times I've intubated a patient on, you know, high settings of high-flow nasal cannula, and within a few hours, they're paralyzed, prone, and we're calling for ECLS consideration. So, um, again, a reflection of how sick they can be. One addition I'd make is that, uh, you know, I do think the recovery RS data was interesting, demonstrating perhaps benefit of CPAP over even high flow. It doesn't tend to be the way I practice, and we do use high flow uh, fairly ubiquitously, as I'm sure a lot of places do, given the advantages around comfort and uh, ease of use. One modality that I think is showing some promise, and I, I, I think some of the Ontario centres are starting to use more and more, I wonder if uh, Dave is at his centre, is the, the helmet interface for non-invasive ventilation. You may have seen it was used widely in Italy uh, during the earlier pandemics. There's some advantages that it's more comfortable, less of an aerosolization risk for healthcare workers. And we have a couple of studies looking at its role, both in COVID patients and non-COVID patients, in that it might be able to still provide that CPAP and a little bit of drive pressure, but circumvent some of the issues around you know, lack of communication, lack of ability to deliver nutrition, this sort of thing. So I think that's an area that might sh- show some promise, and we've started using the helmet a little bit more and more in the last little while. We, we um, uh, would just echo Bram's comments uh, and um, uh, also perhaps add that, that the other sort of um, uh, mitigating or uh, uh, important factor in all of this is, is the resource um, management. And in some cases, in some hospitals in various jurisdictions, uh, some of those uh, decisions around um, 
ventilation, whether invasive or non-invasive, uh, may be in fact a bit constrained uh, simply by um, what be accommodated in various parts of the hospital and um, staffing issues and equipment issues. Definitely, we need to be very mindful of our available resources, both in terms of technology and staffing. Um, as we draw to the end of this podcast, um, I, I want to thank you both for uh, really highlighting very important issues uh, in the management of uh, COVID-19. I also want to give you all, uh, each the opportunity to leave our audience with uh, any concluding remarks or any comments that we haven't had the opportunity to discuss. Um, I'll start with David and then uh, give uh, Bram the final word. Um, David. Sure, I think um, you know we've we've learned so much uh, through through the last couple of years, and um, it's really been astounding how much um, critical care research has been done in in a very short time, um, which really is a, a testament to um, the the collaboration and collegiality of uh, of ICU practitioners and researchers, uh, really the world over. So that's been um, uh, heartening to see, certainly. Um, I think what's really um, interesting and fascinating to contemplate um, from this point forward is um, thinking about ways that we can begin to um, uh, uh, refine some of these practices to provide a more uh, precise and personalized approach uh, for each of these patients. And I think we actually touched on that issue tangentially, at least in in discussing each of these various um, uh, complications that we see from COVID, uh, whether it's um, some uh, genome sequencing that might uh, reveal which patients are likely to uh, respond to uh, certain targeted anti-inflammatories versus others, um, the use of uh, esophageal manometry to uh, truly measure um, pressures and efforts rather than to um, estimate them, um, and, and, and uh, you know, personalized approaches to caring for patients and, and their families, especially in cases like we had in the spring where, where, where families may be quite um, at a distance uh, from their loved ones who are critically ill and receiving critical care in, in a faraway place. So there's lots of interesting um, areas to explore um, in, the, in the refining of, of practices to, to try. Thank you, David. Um, Bram, uh, you want to give the final word? I think Dave summed things up nicely, and I, I don't know if I have anything uh, smart to add uh, to his uh, nice summary, but I, just to reiterate, it is pretty amazing where we find ourselves today compared to, you know, perhaps where we were even just two years ago. Um, there's a lot that's made and a lot of negativity around public health measures and, and um, around how the COVID has been handled in multiple different jurisdictions, but when you do sit back and reflect, I, I, I agree with Dave. It's, it's pretty unbelievable how far we've come uh, at the same time, uh, no doubt through challenges, but it's pretty amazing. So, no, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to participate in this podcast and, and do it alongside Dave as well. It's been great. Well, you both have done an absolutely fantastic job and uh, really enjoyed reading your article, and I definitely encourage um, our chess community to do the same. So a very big thank you to uh, Drs. Maslov and Rochberg for a great conversation, and a very big thank you to our chess community uh, for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast. <laughs>